You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today, we continue our series on German scientist, traveler, and explorer, Alexander von Humboldt. This episode will cover two parts in the life of Humboldt. Part one will be his travels in Mexico and America. Part two will be his life back in Europe from about 1805 to 1829, nearly a quarter of a century. We will finish up today as Humboldt begins his last great expedition, a journey to the far-flung corners of Russia. I want to mention that at this point in Humboldt's life, he really is more traveler than explorer. In the past episodes, he's mapping places few people had ever gone. It's over rapids and waterfalls, down great rivers, to ancient abandoned cities, and up and across mighty mountains. He still has a lot of traveling to do, but the exploring element will be less a part of things going forward. So in our last episode, we left Humboldt, Aimbonplant, Carlos Montefiore, and Jose de la Cruz as they sailed north from Guayaquil, on the western coast of South America in modern-day Ecuador. They had departed on February 17, 1803, just before the start of the hurricane season. To have waited would have forced the company to spend many months in South America, something Humboldt was not interested in doing. Humboldt's original plan was to sail to Acapulco, Mexico, and then catch a ship crossing the Pacific to the Philippines. From there, he would return to Europe through Asia and the Middle East. This would have been an epic around-the-world journey. Before departing from Guayaquil, I do have one item I want to mention, something I forgot about in our last episode. On Humboldt's journey from Lima to Guayaquil, he did his typical sort of collecting of specimens and measuring, including water temperatures. While Humboldt noted that there was an unusual cold coastal current running up the South American coast, the current goes from southern Chile to northern Peru, running thousands of miles. To have a cold water current in the tropics is very rare. It creates nutrient-rich waters, making the current one of the most productive marine ecosystems in the world. This current would be named the Humboldt Current, although Humboldt protested it being named after him, saying that the locals along the coast had known about it for centuries. It had even been noted by Jose de Acosta, a Jesuit missionary 250 years earlier. No matter, I mention it because it is one of those cool little things that Humboldt is known for. Anyhow, back to our voyage north to Mexico. Humboldt's ship arrived in Acapulco on March 23, 1803, after a 33-day voyage. When Humboldt and his company debarked, there was a huge collection of specimens, crates, gear, and oddities from their most recent journeys. This included monkeys, birds, and even mastodon bones. Acapulco had a reputation as a dismal place. Hot and humid, the city filled with runaway slaves and criminals, 
drinking and fighting were commonplace. But the city was also a critical port for Spain's colonial trade network. Twice a year, Acapulco would swell with people, the population more than doubling. And this was when Spain's galleons departed for the Philippines and when they returned. These were the famed Manila galleons, which I covered in an episode called Andres de Urdaneta and the Manila Galleons. Check that out if you want to know more. The galleons from Asia brought things such as silk, jade, spices, ivory, amber, porcelain, and much more. As for the ships going to Manila, silver, mined in Mexico and South America, was the primary item of value. China's monetary system was based on silver, so it was highly valued. Anyhow, even before Humboldt arrived in Acapulco, he noted something very curious. The maps were wrong as to the location of the port. It was more than 100 miles west of its location on the maps of the day. Humboldt thought that this was nuts. Here was one of the most important cities in Spain's trade network, and the location had never been properly mapped. And so, the first thing Humboldt did after stepping onto the docks of Acapulco was to begin a survey of the port. Humboldt departed from Acapulco on April 1st, heading towards Mexico City, stopping at the mining town of Tasco. It was a dusty and hot march, the temperature reaching 104 degrees in the shade, or 40 degrees Celsius. Humboldt mapped and charted as they went, and made astronomical observations at night. At Tasco, Humboldt began an exhaustive look at the mines and the mining practices of the Spanish government. Spain produced two-thirds of the world's silver, and the colonial administration was eager to improve the mining of the ore and find other mineral resources. Frankly, Humboldt was appalled by what he saw. Mining methods were antiquated and dangerous. Tunnels were ill-ventilated and prone to collapse. There were children and old men forced to work endless hours in the dark. And while the indigenous laborers were technically not slaves, they may as well have been. Next, Humboldt would move on to Mexico City and make it his base of operations for the next year. He had not planned to stay in Mexico for long, but decided to make a detailed map of New Spain and the Americas and the Caribbean. At the same time, he continued to examine the mining industry and Mexico. He also did a deep dive into the pre-colonial history of the native peoples. During all of this, Humboldt gave lectures and met with the top scientists of the day. He grilled experts in geology, astronomy, archaeology, and anything he found of interest. Regarding Mexico City, he liked it, calling it a city of palaces. The city featured wide streets, grand churches, big parks, and was the hub of culture in New Spain. Humboldt spent most of his time in Mexico City, but did go on excursions into the surrounding region, mostly related to the mining industry. There were also some mountains to climb, and Humboldt even managed to get his hands on some mammoth bones. Regarding the ancient Indian cultures, Humboldt again was fascinated, just as he had been with the Inca and the tribes along the Orinoco. He was thrilled to see an ancient stone Aztec calendar and would have it meticulously copied. He visited the pyramids of Teotihuacan, marveling at the symmetry and precision of their construction. He even bought some ancient writings, which were rare even for this time. There was other typical stuff as well, including collecting plant and animal and rock samples. Humboldt would spend a year in Mexico, and he would ultimately publish a detailed look at the territory called A Political Essay on the Kingdom of New Spain. This was not unlike the essay he had written on Cuba, but much more in-depth. This would be multiple volumes, and it would be the most complete and detailed look at the past, present, and future of New Spain. Benito Juarez, who was Mexico's president from 1858 to 1872, praised Humboldt's work because it demonstrated the greatness and prosperity of not just the land, but Mexico's people and culture. For this, Juarez would give Humboldt the title Benefactor of the Nation. We have talked about this with several other works of Humboldt's, his ability to look at a place through the eyes of all the people, 
it was just something rarely done by other Western observers at this time and place. Anyhow, as 1804 rolled around, Humboldt knew it was time to head back to Europe. The idea of a round-the-world journey was dead. Not only was he tired and feeling isolated, but almost all of his instruments were broken. He had oodles of notebooks and journals, crates and crates full of specimens, thousands of pages of a personal diary, and so many ideas, it was time to put pen to paper. Well, not quite yet. Humboldt decided he would visit one final place before returning to Europe, and that was the United States. Humboldt admired the young republic. They had not succumbed to despotism, as had France, and they had rid themselves of the monarchy, a political system he felt from another era. And the president, Thomas Jefferson, was a man of the Enlightenment. Such a visit would be the perfect way to cap off his journey through the Americas. And thus the party headed to Veracruz in February, where Humboldt promptly did a proper survey of the port. Humboldt, Bonplant, Montefiore, and Jose departed on March 7th, bound first for Cuba and then the United States. They had with them 40 trunks and crates of specimens and artifacts. On the voyage to Havana, their ship would run into a hurricane and get pounded by winds and rain for six days. Humboldt commented that it would be just his luck to spend nearly five years fighting for all that he had done, only to get lost in a hurricane at the end of the voyage. But that was Humboldt being his usual dramatic self. The ship would manage to reach Havana safely. There, Humboldt would retrieve a cache of items that he had left in the city, and then they sailed to Philadelphia. As a note, I am not positive, but I think this is where the mestizo's servant, Jose de la Cruz, who had trudged through most of Central America with Humboldt, left the party, but I'm not exactly sure. Humboldt's ship would arrive in Philadelphia at the end of May 1804. The city of 75,000 was one of the leading scientific centers in the new nation. Humboldt immediately sent off a long letter to President Thomas Jefferson, asking for a meeting. He even offered to bring along some mammoth teeth, as Jefferson was known to believe that mammoths might still exist in the American interior. As I mentioned before, Thomas Jefferson was a child of the Enlightenment. To meet the man who had written the Declaration of Independence was a big deal for Humboldt. While he was not really that interested in politics, Humboldt admired Jefferson, Washington, and the ideals of the American Republic. Humboldt had been 20 years old when the French Revolution had happened, and he clung to the feelings and ideals that had surged throughout Europe at that time. So much of that was based on the American Revolution. Anyhow, Jefferson quickly replied, inviting Humboldt to Washington, D.C., America's new capital city. He was excited to meet the now famous explorer and scientist, as were many others. To have a man of Humboldt's stature in America was a great thing. Humboldt and his entourage would depart for Washington on May 26th, a stop in Baltimore in between. Humboldt would be a hit in D.C., and to be honest, wherever he went. He was hosted by James Madison and his wife Dolly. He met with leading intellectuals and scientists. Painter and scientist Charles Wilson Peale, who had done portraits of many of the greats of the early American Republic, including Washington, Jefferson, and Lafayette, regaled Humboldt with tales of these men. Peale was so impressed with Humboldt, he would do his portrait as well. That painting, by the way, is in the Smithsonian. It shows the 34-year-old Humboldt in the prime of his life. He was so energetic and vigorous at this time, most thought him younger than his years. Albert Gallatin, Secretary of the Treasury, and a man hard to please by all accounts, was amazed at the breadth of knowledge that Humboldt possessed, as well as his keen intellect. He noted how Humboldt moved easily between French, German, Spanish, and English, and his ability to grasp things quickly and clearly was extraordinary. Gallatin would say, quote, The extent of his reading and scientific knowledge is astonishing. End quote. Gallatin, by the way, would be inspired by Humboldt and his studies of the indigenous peoples of Central America. He would go on to extensively study the Native American people, 
for which he became known as the father of American ethnology. He also founded the American Ethnological Society. Now, all of these people were fun to meet, but the man that Humboldt came to see was Thomas Jefferson. The American president was 61 years old, and he had lived in France for five years after the Revolution. Jefferson and Humboldt would hit it off right away, and it wasn't long before the visiting German was invited to Jefferson's home in Monticello. The two men were very alike, at least in some ways. They were intense, curious men who were never idle. They loved science and history, and they both admired French culture. They were both devoted to studying nature, collecting plants, animals, soils, and more. Both were very interested in the native peoples that lived in these lands. Humboldt was impressed by Jefferson's wide range of knowledge and his commitment to science. Jefferson experimented with crop rotation, seed varieties, and new machinery and tools. At his estate, he grew 330 varieties of 99 species of vegetables and herbs. As for Humboldt, Jefferson called him, quote, the most scientific man of his age, end quote. But Jefferson's interest in Humboldt wasn't just scientific. He had some very selfish reasons for wanting to talk to Humboldt. The United States had just purchased the Louisiana Territory from France. This was more than 800,000 square miles, or 2 million kilometers, of land that would eventually encompass parts of 13 states. Jefferson wanted to know more about these lands. The Spanish were certainly not interested in sharing such information with him, as they disputed the sale. The Lewis and Clark expedition had just been launched to find out more about the territory and solidify America's claim to the region. And you know what? Humboldt was happy to share what he had with Jefferson and other American officials. Humboldt believed in the free exchange of ideas and knowledge. This included economic information, geographic data, pretty much anything. Thus, he allowed the Americans to copy his maps of New Spain, his assessments of the economic strengths and weaknesses of the Spanish colonies, demographics, and pretty much anything he had collected. He noted that Spanish colonial officials were foolish, focusing too much on gold and silver and gems, or cash crops. He pointed out that in Venezuela, large swaths of land were devoted to growing indigo, a cash crop. This forced the population to import food from the Caribbean and the United States, and the growing of indigo sucked the soil of nutrients, destroying it. Both Humboldt and Jefferson were fans of small, self-sustaining farms, not huge cash crop estates. Regarding the maps and data he gave the Americans, this was a goldmine of information. Jefferson said the maps were more accurate than anything in Europe. Humboldt also told the Americans that, according to his research, the mountains in the American West were a huge economic opportunity for them. Now, the two men did have a big difference on slavery and race. Jefferson, despite owning slaves, preached the evils of slavery. However, he argued that blacks were inferior to whites and setting them free would lead to worse situations than if slavery continued in America. He said that slavery would end through gradual emancipation. Humboldt disagreed. He very much believed that men were equal no matter what color, and he vehemently argued against the practice of slavery, saying it needed to end. He correctly saw how it would ultimately divide nations, such as the United States. Despite these two differences, the two men would remain friends and correspond regularly for more than 20 years. Well, as much as Humboldt enjoyed hobnobbing with the American president and the leading scientists of Philadelphia, Europe beckoned. Humboldt, Bonpland, and Montefiore boarded a French frigate in August and waved farewell to the Americas. Humboldt had with him dozens of notebooks, hundreds of sketches, tens of thousands of astronomical, geographical, and meteorological observations. Author Andrea Wolfe, in her biography of Humboldt, said that he brought back 60,000 plant specimens, 6,000 species, of which 2,000 were new to Western science. To put that into perspective, when Humboldt had departed Europe in 1799, there were only 6,000 known species. 
That's staggering to think that the number of species known to science went from 6,000 to 8,000 overnight just because of the work done by Humboldt and Bonpland. Anyhow, across the Atlantic, Humboldt would head, arriving in Bordeaux, France, on August 1st, 1804. He had been gone for more than five years. His expedition to the Americas was over. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Alexander von Humboldt returned to Europe and found a place quite different than he had left. France was no longer a republic as Napoleon was to become emperor by the end of the year, and war was, again, raging across the continent. But before we get into all of that, I do want to do an account of Humboldt's journey. First thing, the Spanish government was thrilled at the massive amount of data that he came back with. The maps were incredible, not to mention all the data that he had amassed. All of the scientific stuff, specimens and fossils and rocks, were great as well, but the information Humboldt brought them was vaster than anything they had imagined. The report would bring investment into the colonies, but Spanish officials ignored many of Humboldt's suggestions to improve conditions and prospects for the populace. This lack of foresight would lead to revolution sweeping across Latin America in the coming decades. Second, if you want to talk about exploring and discoveries, what Humboldt did was pretty amazing. There were thousands of new plant and animal species. There was the Casquiare, the Orinoco River, the mountains of the Andes. All of these things he had meticulously mapped and measured and studied, often for the first time in history. And then there were the people. Humboldt did exhaustive dives into many of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. This sort of thing was rare, and it meant that the people of the Americas came to treasure Humboldt because he saw them as more than just statistics and actually acknowledged them and their culture for the first time. It's great stuff. Third, all of the things that Humboldt brought back will serve as a basis for so much of his work in the coming decades. The stuff and the journey is what will inspire scientific breakthroughs and revolutions for decades to come. Again, it's amazing stuff. So, upon Humboldt's return to Europe, he went to Paris and settled in. The Napoleonic Wars were now in full swing, but Paris was somewhat immune to the war. Humboldt loved that science and art and knowledge wasn't confined by the likes of the church or the monarchy. Ideas flourished in Paris, and Humboldt loved it. Within three weeks of arriving, he was delivering lectures at the Paris Academy of Science, and he quickly found an adoring audience of like-minded scientists, artists, and dreamers. Paris loved Humboldt. He was only 35 years old, good-looking, fit, and he could tell stories that no person in the world could match. Everyone wanted a piece of the guy. 
Humboldt's sister-in-law, Caroline, would come to Paris at this time and write back to her husband, Wilhelm, saying that Alexander never looked healthier in his life. Humboldt was living the high life. However, he would be called back to Berlin by his king, Friedrich Wilhelm, in 1805. The king loved Humboldt and named him as a chamberlain and gave him a pension of $2,500 a year, no strings attached. As a reference, a craftsman, such as a carpenter, made $200 in a year. This was not knock-your-socks-off kind of money, but it was really nice to have, and it would be important to Humboldt because money would be an issue for the man. Let me explain. On the expedition to the Americas, Humboldt would spend $50,000, half of his fortune. And when he starts producing his books, that's going to drain his cash to the point where it will be gone. I should note that Humboldt was generous in supporting others. This included time and money. His sister-in-law, Carolyn, felt that people took advantage of Humboldt, but it was in his nature to support and promote people interested in the sciences and the arts. Because of all of this, the pension from the Prussian government was, at times, his only source of income. By the way, if you are wondering about all the books that Humboldt will publish, he will make some money from those, but not a ton. The reason is that he financed the publication of his books himself, and it wasn't just him writing. There was so much more. He had to hire artists and engravers and whoever else was needed to perfect his books. But I will talk about that sort of thing shortly. Another note about this. I mentioned Humboldt was named a chamberlain by the king, but with no responsibilities. That and the pension are important because it does tie Humboldt to the Prussian crown. And there will be times when Humboldt's monarch calls and he will have to respond. By the way, King Friedrich Wilhelm loved to have a famous scientist on his payroll. And Humboldt was embarrassed by the position, asking his friend not to mention it to others. Despite this, he sincerely appreciated the kind treatment extended to him by the king. Anyhow, Humboldt's world would be upended when Prussia went to war with France in 1806. The famed Prussian army would be crushed by Napoleon in October, and Prussia lost half of its empire. Humboldt would be part of a peace mission sent by the king to Paris in 1807, and while the mission failed in its attempt to ease the onerous financial penalty implemented after the recent defeat, it did give Humboldt the chance to escape Berlin, which he found dreary and dull. When the mission returned to Prussia, Humboldt simply stayed in Paris, writing to his king that it was necessary to do so in order to continue his scientific work. The king would agree. Humboldt would make the city his home for the next 15 years. By the way, Humboldt remaining in Paris upset many people. Humboldt's brother, Wilhelm, tried to get Alexander to come home, saying it was his patriotic duty, but Alexander would have none of it. Wilhelm, by the way, became the Minister of Education in Prussia and was pivotal to the founding of the University of Berlin in 1811. No matter, over the next 15 years, Humboldt basically did the following. 1. He held court to the leading artists, writers, scientists, and dignitaries of Paris. People would come to his simple apartment, but more than not, each day he would visit multiple salons, regaling his audience with stories and observations. He loved Paris, and Paris loved him. 2. He cultivated friendships and relationships. He corresponded regularly with men such as Joseph Banks, Thomas Jefferson, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, and other leading thinkers of the day. And I want to point out, it wasn't just the high and mighty that Humboldt entertained and corresponded with. He began a friendship with a 21-year-old aristocrat from Caracas named Simon Bolivar, who would go on to become the greatest revolutionary leader in South America, nicknamed the Liberator. Bolivar was, at this time, a dreamer who was fascinated by the man who loved his homeland. Author Andrea Wolfe said this of Bolivar's reaction to Humboldt, quote, As Humboldt spoke of the great rapids of the Orinoco and the soaring peaks of the Andes, of towering palms and electric eels, Bolivar realized that no European had ever painted South America in such vivid colors, end quote. 
Bolivar would later use Humboldt's maps in his war against the Spanish, and he said that Humboldt's descriptions of South America inspired him and they enfranchised the people. Bolivar later said Humboldt had, quote, done America more good than all the conquerors, end quote. Humboldt would later admit that he had no clue that Bolivar would go on to become such an accomplished leader, but he was proud that he had been able to inspire the man to such heights. 3. Humboldt did experiments. He was particularly interested in magnetism, and in one year did more than 6,000 astronomical observations related to the Earth's magnetism. The fourth thing Humboldt did was to try and figure out his next big adventure. He had loved the challenge and the excitement of exploring, and he wanted to do more. He toyed with the idea of going to America and exploring the West, but that would not happen. And then there was a request in 1811 from Russia's Tsar Alexander asking Humboldt to come and visit and do some work for him, but that opportunity fizzled out. But the place Humboldt truly wanted to go to was India, and specifically the Himalayas. For Humboldt, the idea of going to the region was his greatest dream. This would allow him to follow up on the work he had done in the Andes. However, going to India was a dicey thing, and that's because to go to India meant you had to have permission not just from the English government, which ruled the area at this time, but the British East India Company. The British East India Company was basically a state within a state, so cracking their bureaucracy was not easy. Humboldt went to London three times between 1814 and 1818 to try and get permission for his expedition. He had the financing in order, thanks to the Prussian crown, but permission from the East India Company was elusive. The big obstacle was by this time, Humboldt's writings were available to the public, and the East India Company was not keen to let someone they saw as an anti-colonialist run freely throughout their domain. And so they never granted Humboldt permission to go to India, which was a shame. The Himalayas were barely known at this time, and Humboldt would have had a field day exploring them. And the fifth thing Humboldt did while in Paris was to write and publish. The first volume of his journey to the Americas was published in 1807. It was called Personal Narrative of a Voyage to the Equinoctial Regions of the New Continent. It was the first of 34 volumes. Yes, 34. It would take decades for everything to be released. His piece titled Essay on the Geography of Plants was published that same year. This included his groundbreaking drawing of Chimborazo, which we discussed last time. It was the world's first ecological book, as Humboldt grouped plants into zones and regions rather than taxonomical units. It was a new way to look at the natural world. Views of Nature would be published in 1808. Here, Humboldt focused on smaller slices of his work and made them more than just a scientific book. These were easier to read and the prose was more lyrical. There's still a lot of scientific stuff, but it was much more accessible to the average person. In 1810, he published the first volume of 69 engravings. This included Chimborazo volcanoes, as well as Incan and Aztec manuscripts and calendars. It was a celebration of the natural world and ancient civilizations and people. Humboldt published specialized books on botany, zoology, and astronomy, and the first of four volumes of his political essays of the Kingdom of New Spain was published in 1808. The one on Cuba would follow. By the way, these publications would make Humboldt the most respected and sought-after voice in Europe on matters regarding South America. In 1817, he published an essay essentially inventing isotherms. These are the wavy lines we see on today's weather maps, a way to visualize global climate patterns. Otherwise, Humboldt's writings would inspire others. This included scientists, artists, and poets. One of the things Humboldt strove for was explaining things to people in a clear way. For that, he understood the need to show people stuff, not just tell them. And that's why the Chimborazo drawing is so groundbreaking. All of this makes Humboldt's ideas accessible to so many people. One young man who read Humboldt and was so inspired was Charles Darwin. 
The two men would become friends later in life. Humboldt's ideas on evolution would be critical to Darwin's thinking. In fact, there is a quote that I love that really demonstrates why this sort of thing was so important. Humboldt wrote Darwin saying, quote, You told me that when you were young, the manner in which I studied and depicted nature in the torrid zones contributed towards exciting in you the ardor and desire to travel in distant lands. Considering the importance of your work, sir, this may be the greatest success that my humble work could bring. Works are of value only if they give rise to better ones. End quote. Humboldt was, like most people, the kind of guy who loved recognition and praise. But above that was science and knowledge and truth. That he can proudly acknowledge that his work led to something better is wonderful stuff. Now, all of these books would, for the rest of Humboldt's life, put a strain on his finances. He financed the publication of his own works. He hired artists, engravers, botanists, geologists, whoever he needed to get his books published. One writer said that his works are the most expensive ever privately published by a scientist. Because of this, for much of his life, Humboldt will be forced to scramble for cash to publish his next book. He would borrow and beg whatever it took. The problem with all of this is that Humboldt's books weren't that big of a seller in his day. There are only so many people who want to buy a copy of volume 18 of his personal journey, or four volumes of his study on New Spain. These were all important and respected works, but that didn't necessarily mean big sales. And I should note, some of these were wildly expensive, such as the volumes with all the colored images. Only so many people could afford such things. No matter, all of this highlights Humboldt's world and his life in the 15 to 20 years after returning to Europe. But there are a few things I want to add to all of that, sort of a bookkeeping of people and events that I want to make sure we cover. I will start by mentioning the end of the war in Europe. At the Battle of Leipzig in October of 1813, the combined forces of Great Britain, Prussia, Sweden, Austria, Russia, and others defeated Napoleon and the French. By March of 1814, Paris fell. Humboldt helped protect the botanical gardens of the city from serving as a campsite for the Prussian army, and he helped prevent the sacking of the Natural History Museum. But it was awkward for Humboldt, as he was seen by some as a French lackey. Luckily, the king would forgive Humboldt for his perceived unpatriotic actions. Humboldt would even act as a guide for the king, taking him around Paris. Humboldt would stay in Paris after the war, but with the return of the monarchy to France, he saw the erosion of freedom of thought and knowledge in science. It saddened him that the ideals of the revolution had ended as such. Anyhow, I have two people I want to mention before moving on with Humboldt. The first is Aime Bonplant, Humboldt's trusty sidekick on his journey through the Americas. Bonplant had been given the task of putting together the botany book of their journey, but he worked slowly, frustrating Humboldt at times. Still, multiple volumes would be published between 1808 and 1816. Bonplant became friends with Napoleon's wife, Josephine. He oversaw the gardens at her chateau and would even be present at her death in 1814. He tried to get Napoleon to retire to Venezuela with him before the French emperor was captured and sent into exile. Bonplant would move to Buenos Aires in 1816 and become a professor of natural history. However, that didn't last very long, and in 1821, he set up a large estate near the Parana River, specifically to harvest and sell yerba mate, which is sort of like a tea. The estate was located in territory claimed by both Paraguay and Argentina, and the dictator of Paraguay feared that Bonplant would cut into his own business. And thus, on December 8, 1821, 400 Paraguayan soldiers attacked the estate, killing the workers and taking Bonplant back to Paraguay as a spy. Bonpont was said to have been broken during his stay, and efforts by Humboldt, Simon Boulevard, and others failed to free him. Bonpont would finally be released after nine years in captivity. He returned to Argentina, settled down, married a woman, and made a living as a farmer and trader. 
The local town that he settled in is today called Bonpland. He died in 1858 at the age of 84, never returning to Europe. The second person I want to mention is Carlos de Montefer, the son of the governor of New Granada, who had been a close friend of Humboldt's. Well, Montefer would end up in Spain and join the fight against Napoleon. Then, in 1810, he headed back to South America, where he took up arms against Spain. He eventually served under Simon Boulevard, rising to the rank of colonel. He was known as a brave and capable soldier. However, in 1816, he was captured by Spanish forces and executed as a traitor. Today, he is considered one of the liberators of Ecuador. And so, that wraps up our bookkeeping and takes us to the mid-1820s. Humboldt had published a ton of stuff, and a bunch more was to come, but his dreams of traveling to Asia, or anywhere beyond Europe, were fading. No America, no Himalayas, an opportunity to Mexico fell through, nothing. And while he was a man of immense energy, he was aging, now in his mid-50s. In 1826, Humboldt received orders to return to the Prussian court. The king wanted him home. And in many ways, Humboldt was okay with that. Many of his friends and colleagues had moved on. The ultra-royalists were only gaining in power, and the vibrant, exhilarating Paris of 1806 was gone. He tried one more time to get permission to go to Asia, but no luck. And so, in April of 1827, Humboldt headed back to Berlin. The king promised him that he could return to Paris several times a year, and he doubled his salary to $5,000. In Berlin, Humboldt was forced to attend to the king whenever he desired. It was demeaning in Humboldt's eyes, but he endured it as it paid the bills. Otherwise, by the year's end, he would begin a 16-week series of lectures, which captivated the city. People loved them, and they were a wild success. These lectures would become the basis for his last major publication, Cosmos, but that will be for next time. But again, this was Humboldt at his finest. He knew how to communicate and connect with people about a subject that was often difficult. Just like in Paris, he was the talk of the town. And that takes us up to Humboldt's last expedition. He had dreamed of going to India, but Russia was also of interest, and the Russians had talked to him several times before, but nothing had materialized. Well, that was about to change. Russia was the largest empire in the world, stretching from Europe to the Pacific, and the thing is, the Tsar and his ministers knew precious little about the lands to the west. Also, they had the idea of changing their economy to be a platinum-based currency. The government wanted Humboldt to investigate the mines of the Ural Mountains and assess their potential. Humboldt was skeptical about the platinum currency idea, since the world's economy was mostly based on silver. But you know what? That was okay, especially since the Russian government was going to pay for things. And Humboldt was excited to travel not just to the Urals, but across the steppes of Siberia to Russia's border with China. And so, in early 1829, Humboldt made plans to travel to Asia. He was older and heavier, and suffered from the aches and pains of a 59-year-old man. But he was excited to be on the road again, 25 years after his American adventure. We will cover the Russian expedition in our next episode. However, there is one final thing I want to share with you about Humboldt. On March 26, 1829, Carolyn von Humboldt, Alexander's sister-in-law, died. I mention this because she was really the only woman to have an important influence on Humboldt during his lifetime. She was really a pretty remarkable woman. She had eight children, five which lived beyond childhood. But she and her husband, Wilhelm, were champions of education and knowledge. Their home was often a salon, a place for writers and artists and thinkers to come and gather. Wilhelm was said to have been devastated by her death. Alexander mourned his sister-in-law, but it would not stop him from setting off on his next adventure. And so that is where we will wrap up things for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please join us next time when we continue our series on Alexander von Humboldt. Thank you for listening.
The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, including Motley Fool Money and Bro History. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.